This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. We are out and about again here in Washington, D.C. Ted's Bulletin is our host restaurant this week. First time we've been here. Breakfast will be on the menu. They have some, I'm told, house-made Pop-Tarts. I'm looking forward to those. Quick reminder how this show works, ladies and gentlemen. We have political perspectives from all sides of the aisle, conservative, moderate, liberal. This week on the conservative side, South Dakota Republican Governor Christy Nome. Governor, it's great to see you. Oh, it's fantastic to be here. And at one of my favorite restaurants, so thank you. You've been here before because you served in Congress before returning to South Dakota to become governor. Uh, You have a new book out. I will show it to the audience. Not my first rodeo. Mm -hmm. For those of you who keep track of this, on Amazon, it is number one in women in politics books, number two in local U.S. government, and number three in political biography. So Mm. congratulations for that. Yeah, it's done very well. It made the New York Times bestseller list, too. So So you're also, in addition to writing a book, uh, running for re-election, running digital ads, I see, in three states. What states are Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Now, Governor, I've covered one or two presidential campaigns. All three of those states loom large in the calendar. So let's just cut to the chase. Do you want to announce you're running for president in 2024 right here and right now? No, I don't think so. But oh. I will announce that I'm hoping South Dakota will hang on to me. Uh, you know, I am on the ballot again this yeah. year, and we've been doing fantastic in South Dakota. So, How many South Dakota gubernatorial voters you know, live in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina? Probably not many voters, but we have had incredible in-migration in our state from people all over the country. You know, I think people recognized South Dakota was a special place in 2020 when we ran those tourism ads, mm-hmm. and people from all over came to visit us and picked up and moved their families there. So we have learned the value of telling South Dakota's story in many places across the United States. But you know Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina are early in the primary calendar. It's a natural question. Why there? We get a lot of questions from people about the future. Um, mm-hmm. I've never been one to speak in hypotheticals. Right. Uh, it's important for me to talk to the people that support me mm-hmm. and have supported what I've done in South Dakota. You know, there was times over the last several years of the challenges we faced where I was very alone. Uh, we're a lot of critics we'll on the national we stage. Yep. We're coming after me. It's been really good to hear a lot of encouragement from across the country for what we're doing. Well, let me ask the question in reverse. Do you want to say you're not going to run for president in 2024? No, I wouldn't say that. I would just say that I'm focused on South Dakota. That's mm-hmm. my priority. 
and from there we'll see where people you don't rule it to, out i i don't rule it out just because people bring it up quite often right uh it would be and you're doing things consistent with trying to build a national profile and there's several people that are out there talking about running for president mm-hmm. i'm not convinced it has to be me uh, but i do think that we got to have good people that are willing to step up and serve okay uh on this program mm-hmm. not too long ago kevin kramer united yes. states senator said he thinks the country might be ready for a fresh start and doesn't need to see President Trump run again in 2024. Just last week on this program, Mick Mulvaney, who served as acting chief of staff to President Trump, said, I don't want him to run. We don't need him, meaning we, the Republican Party, doesn't need him. Mike Pompeo was on this program, said whether or not President Trump runs again, he very well may run in 2024. Mm-hmm. So it, those are three people who are... Were tr- Trump supporters. Trump supporters. Yep. Republicans in very good standing. I would generally think you would say that. All saying that they either have hesitations or they really don't want to see President Trump run again in 2024. What is your opinion about that? Well, I think he's going to run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if President Trump runs, I'll support him. You know, he's got incredible loyalty across this country. I've been in a lot of different states in my home state of South Dakota. What he did and his policies were incredible for our families. So if he runs, he'll be the front, front runner in uh, that primary. If he primary. ran, would that mean you would not run? You know, I I think that it, more than likely, I've said that if he's going to run, that I'll support him. And not so, run. Right, correct. So mm-hmm. if he does that and makes that decision, you know, I'm sure we'll have lots of conversations about what that looks like. How do you interpret all the Republican buzz that seems to be generated by the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis? Well, I know Ron. We got elected to Congress the same year, served for eight years together in the House, and ran for governor the same mm-hmm. year. So... You know, he's done some good things down there in Florida, too. I know. Look at that. Oh, we're going to get ice cream, too. That's a breakfast right there. Yes. That's that's an authentic breakfast. God bless America. So we have... (laughs) Yes, uh, thank you. We thank you. you. All right, that's All right. good. That's a that's a breakfast fit for champions. That is. That's a South Dakota breakfast. So back to right Ron. Back to Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. Uh, is he like the best all Trump alternative? It seemed Republicans seem to think that, or the polls suggest that might be true. You know, we've just got some incredible people that that are alternatives that might be, to President Trump. Yeah, that might no, that might be willing to step up and run. So, mm. you know, I'm friends with quite a few of them. You've got. You know, probably a good dozen Republicans that if President Trump does not run for president again, mm-hmm. uh, they're probably all thinking about it. As a friend, would you advise Governor DeSantis not to challenge President Trump if he runs? No, I don't think uh, Governor DeSantis will take any advice from me. He, <laughs> seems, he, he seems to know his own mind. Mm-hmm. I would say everybody needs good advice. So I want to ask you about the book. I've read every page of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, on page 20, you it seems to me come close to describing yourself as a child, as a tomboy type. Mm-hmm. True? Very true. Did you feel in any way alienated from your friends that way? I would say I always knew that I was a little bit different. The things that I loved to do were outside with my dad, with cattle, horses, hunting. Mm-hmm. So I knew that wasn't a typical little girl story in South Dakota. Right. Um, you also talk about on page 43 the importance of vaccinating livestock. That's pretty common. In broad strokes, on the question of vaccination and COVID, where do you come down and where did you come down on that? Well, it's we've never mandated any vaccinations in because? the state of South Dakota just because I believe in personal freedom. Uh, and what we saw so much the last couple of years was uh, government forgetting its role in people's lives. So especially when it comes to a vaccination that's unproven. Um, you know, that was experimental like it was at the time Even when COVID started. Even though it was under the Trump administration. Yes, absolutely. I think at that time it should have been up to the families to decide, uh, you know, how they were going to 
uh, approach vaccinations and if they wanted to do that or not. Now, for us in South Dakota, we made very different decisions than many other states, but I think our folks have really appreciated that. Mm -hmm. Do you feel comfortable discussing your vaccination status? Some Americans do, some Americans don't. I do. I I was vaccinated for COVID, Mm -hmm. um, but I also know I have other family members that chose not to. Mm -hmm. And how do you come down on that? Is it all just personal choice, or do you think there's anything about vaccination that is a collective thing for the betterment of public health or the community around you? Well, I'll talk about my family's personal history. Mm -hmm. You know, I certainly, my children got certain vaccinations growing up, and I'm sure that their children will too. So I'm not Mm anti-vax. I also think that when you get into a situation like we've seen the last few years, that making those personal choices was incredibly important to people, just because they did not know the long-lasting effects of what our health experts were recommending. At this stage, seeing how much vaccination has been achieved across the country, do you believe it is now, you said a moment ago, unproven? Do you believe it's proven now, essentially, as an effective and helpful? I think it's still incredibly unproven. It's incredibly unproven to your mind. I do. I think that a lot of the results aren't necessarily um, locked in and that we have to still continue to see the long-lasting effects of, of what we're developing and what we're recommending as far as health experts from around the world. And that's why it's important for us as leaders, uh, and I would say for every family member, to keep reading the studies, keep looking at the research and the data. Uh, we should not be getting our, our knowledge from the evening news. and, and what You re- shouldn't be getting your knowledge from the evening news. Not the in-depth knowledge when it comes to your Are you trying health? to drill a, a, right into my heart, <laughs> Governor, and like make me collapse right here oh, in the middle of my show? You should have known that was coming. I think you know me well enough to know that I would encourage people to do their own homework. Do their own homework, okay? Yep. Meaning, um, they can be as much of an expert as anyone else. Yes, definitely. You know, when when I was making the decisions based on this virus, I think I did what every other governor did. We were studying. But you didn't do what, it, what every other governor no, we, did. At the beginning, we did. We all studied mm-hmm. uh, before it ever came to our states. We were on the phone talking. Uh, listening to health experts from around the world, trying to understand how the virus spread, what was different about it, why it was scaring so many people. Mm -hmm. It changed when I started to make decisions based on what my general counsel Mm -hmm. and constitutional attorneys were telling Mm -hmm. me when we started to see the virus show up in the United States. We will pick up on that when we come Mm -hmm. back on the other side of this first break. And in addition to that, we're going to answer the question, who... Or what is Green 35? <laughs> From page 44 of Governor Christy Nome's book, Not My First Rodeo. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. We are at Ted's Bulletin. And before us, a sea of house-made Pop-Tarts, which we will get into in the yes. very near future. Back in a minute. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. And uh, my compliments to the Republican governor of South Dakota, Christy Noem, mm-hmm. brave enough. I mean, pitching right in wow. scrambled eggs, bacon, and the Ted's Bulletin, house-made Pop-Tarts. Governor, well done. All right. Uh, 
from page 44 of the book, mm-hmm. not my first rodeo. What is Green 35? Or Green, who? Well, she is a legendary cow on our ranch life. in yeah. our family life. Yes, she was difficult every single year when she calved. She always created a memory for us. So By doing what? Well, you know, when cattle have uh, give birth every year, a lot of them get a fever, which causes them to kind of lose their minds, become very angry. So I would say when Green 35 calved every year, we knew this was a trait of hers, and we would have all hands on deck uh, to help get her calf and her move to another pasture. So it just was always an opportunity for us to create a memory. And help for the audience to understand why it's important for a period of time, uh-huh. ever so briefly, to separate the mother from the calf. Well, all we did was we would identify them. So we had to separate them just to get a tag to put in the calf's ears so that you always knew they belonged together. Right. Mothers did not receive that well. Um, and there were parts of the way you described Green 35 that I thought you might have been talking about yourself. Oh, really? Protective, strong-willed, uh, willing to take on a fight, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Were you? You know, I would say so. My family would say that. You know, I... Uh, yeah, I never, I never think of myself that way, but then when they start telling stories about me, apparently I've always been opinionated. And maybe slightly on the ornery side? A little bit. I remember my mom many times getting after me for something I said and me thinking, what did I say? I, not even realizing that I could have said anything that people would disagree with. That it landed with a bit of a thud. Yes. Indeed. Yes. So I want to ask you about something I read on page 60. talks about your father uh, mm-hmm. getting back to the ranch. Mm-hmm. And needing to be in a hurry and yes. being stopped by a patrol person <laughs> and saying, look, you can write me a ticket because I was speeding, but I got to get back to the ranch. Yep. And the officer saying, sure, I'll follow you I'll back follow you there. to the ranch. And this was a neighbor and a friend, as mm-hmm. you describe the officer mm-hmm. in the book. And you also said it's important to look at different situations from someone else's perspective mm-hmm. and in their own shoes. And I thought about that because I've been reporting a lot and thinking a lot about because I started my career as a police reporter Mm -hmm. in two different cities in our country, Amarillo and Las Vegas, the ongoing conversation about policing in America and African-Americans. Many African-Americans would read that story and say that doesn't have anything to do with the life I've lived in America. The police are not my friend. And if I'm stopped and if I ask, can I go to where I need to go? Will you follow me? Mm -hmm. No police officer would ever say yes. Hmm. In fact, they would be scared of even suggesting that. So as I introduce that to you, do you think that story in, in a certain way represents a separateness in America or a different kind of America than other Americans might have lived or experienced or think about? I think it's possible, but that still exists in places in this country. And I think people need to know that that's a relationship that you can have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say our law enforcement overwhelmingly want to have that kind of a relationship with their constituents. In fact, You know, when we saw so many riots and violence across the country the last several years, I did a national marketing campaign to law enforcement and told them if they wanted to be respected uh, and have a community that wrapped their arms around them to move to South Dakota, we've had thousands of law enforcement officers uh, pick up their whole lives and their families and come make South Dakota their home. In fact, the first week we had over 900 from 41 different states that said, you know, I want to come to South Dakota. So I, I think that that story is indicative of the can heart you, of South Dakota. Can you understand how African-Americans might say Absolutely. that's not consistent with the experience and, I've had or my sense of anxiety? And many of my dear friends are African-Americans who haven't had that kind of an experience. I, I would say that that's why this book um, 
should be read by people of all different backgrounds and 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 walks of life because I've learned so much from people who had a completely different story growing up than I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and my goal every day is to get up and to continue to be teachable and to learn uh, from everybody that I interact with. My my family consistently said, you can learn something from your greatest critic mm-hmm. and see what they've said that you can take away from and become a better person on. So that, that story is, I think, should give people hope that their experience may be very different, but that would be the goal that we all have with our law enforcement officers, and hopefully they would want because, to have with be, the people be, because, they serve. Because there is a gentleness and a forbearance and a sort of low-level, not total forgiveness, but slight forgiveness to circumstance mm-hmm. exercised by that law enforcement officer. I would say so. I would say so. But he also knew that he had the support of our family, too. Mm-hmm. You know, we were... The difference is, is that many times in South Dakota, you're living right next door to your law enforcement officer. Your kids are all going to school together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're seeing them in the grocery store. Also you're maybe sitting by them. Not every African American in our country. That's feels. exactly right. That's exactly and right. And that level of estrangement is part of the problem. But it's interesting, Major, because so many people are moving to South Dakota now. Mm-hmm. In fact, for years, when people got on the internet and searched where they wanted to live or where they wanted to vacation, it was always big cities. It was always tropical destinations or beaches that completely changed the last couple of years now the number one search is people want to go to rural open america spaces. open space small towns mm-hmm. so i think they're hungry for a little bit of that old-fashioned way of life so you also write in the book about south dakota's complicated history with native americans mm-hmm. nine tribes in south dakota i did dakota lakota nakota mm-hmm. um, and you say that it's important to understand this difficult history mm-hmm. to not it be is. afraid to peer into it mm-hmm. And to work on reconciliation, mm-hmm. if I read the book correctly. That's exactly right, you did. You so know. there's a conversation, Governor, as you well know, about education in our country mm-hmm. and our very complicated history with race. Mm-hmm. There are some school districts that just are not comfortable with that conversation at all. Yeah. And it seems to me that we have to get more comfortable with that conversation, otherwise we won't understand mm-hmm. the full component parts. We don't need to eradicate or say America's terrible. We say things are real. Exactly right. Things are real. Bad right. things happened, mm-hmm. and we need to come to terms with that. Are you comfortable with that? Absolutely. In fact, we're right in the middle of that in South Dakota right now, and Native American history is taught in all of our classrooms. Mm-hmm. In fact, the good and the bad. The good and the bad. Right. Yes. The tragedies that were um, impacted on them and their yes on their families. You know, wounded knee is in South Dakota. Indeed, it is horrific situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and long term uh, loss and and tragedy and bitterness still from that incident there. Uh, And many Native Americans um, still want a reconciliation for that event in particular. Um, So I think that what we have in this country is a unique opportunity to to work together in new ways. In fact, when I ran for governor, I wanted one tribe, just one of my tribes in South Dakota, to want to have a different relationship with a governor than what they'd had before. And, and really be creative in how we help their families. Because if you look at what's going on in South Dakota, we have nine Native American tribes, right. but they are the poorest, mm-hmm. most destitute, sometimes most dangerous communities in our state um, because of the way of life there and their kids. And the are, sort of legacy of separateness. It really is. It really is. Completely different set of laws and, and governance, and their tribal councils make very different decisions than would be made off the reservation, and then they're dramatically impacted by the federal government and the policies and relationship that they have. So as a governor, my relationship with them 
is there a sovereign nation? Right. So it's a government-to-government relationship. It has to be, right. It is. So you know where I'm probably heading on this. There's a very intense conversation. It was visited on the governor's race in Virginia about Mm -hmm. critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Can this country have a conversation about its racial history that is difficult Mm -hmm. under the guise of critical race theory or not? Well, critical race theory in itself is not a true and honest history. So you can talk about history and all the ugliest parts of it as long as it's the truth and it's documented and it's proven. And then also talk about the fact that we've never once said that any of our leaders were perfect. Mm -hmm. Every one of them is flawed. Acknowledge that and strive to do better. Mm -hmm. Is that anywhere part of the curriculum in South Dakota? It is now. Um, we have uh, we have in South let me, Dakota. Let me make sure you understand what I'm asking. It's critical race oh, theory. No, we have seen it okay. in different uh, textbooks, different school districts mm-hmm. in our state. We've seen examples of it. Uh, we are rewriting our standards right now, especially when it comes to social studies in the state of South Dakota. That is in the middle of the process. That we're hoping that we can identify uh, a true and honest American history, where documents of our foundational government would be focused on instead of opinions or agendas. And even in our universities, uh, we've put forward statutes that have been signed into law that would ban the training and the teaching of critical race theory. Because it is a threat? I think when you're twisting history. And you think critical race theory is a twisting of American history? Yes, it is. It it definitely is, with an agenda to divide people and and to hate each other. It's a what? It has an agenda to divide and to cause people to hate each other. That's the voice of Governor Christy Nome, Republican of South Dakota. Her book, Not My First Rodeo, mm-hmm. Ted's Bulletin, is our host restaurant. Mm-hmm. Governor, keep plowing into that I breakfast will. of yours. Segment three of the takeout in just one second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Christy Nome, Republican Governor of South Dakota, is our guest. Her book, Not My First Rodeo. Uh, You write on page 111 that in 2006, you attended a meeting uh, that Tom Daschle was involved in. And you said, even back then, 2006, which is 16 years ago, bipartisanship was perceived as weakness. Mm -hmm. That's true. It was perceived as weakness then. It's perceived as even more weakness now. I would contend that it's not a weakness. Mm-hmm. That meeting with the other side, knowing the other side, is the essence of getting solutions done. Mm-hmm. That's less and less accepted in American political conversation now. Why? You know, I wouldn't say that it's less accepted by all uh, But you know people, activists get on... Activists do, on, definitely. Uh, they get on their the balls of their feet on left and right mm-hmm. to assail people who co-mingle with the other side or yeah, talk to the I other know, side yeah. they do but that's what we've really got to get over i you know just the whole that's country. what's happened in this country and i've said that quite a bit across the country republicans need to, to get over I that do. democrats i've need actually to get over literally that. said republicans need to get over themselves we've quit talking to each other we become offended by something that somebody has said and we have chosen to stop having conversations and it creates less quality policy remind it, my audience when you served in the house I got elected in 2010, right? And part of that big majority Republican yes, class that came in. Yes, I remember. In. 
and was immediately put on the leadership team mm -hmm. and served there for eight years and then eight ran years. for governor right. so in 2018. It's effectively 2011 to mm -hmm. 2019. Yep. Now, Governor, I've been told by lots of people that young staffers, you had young staffers who I worked did. for you, most mm -hmm. staffers on Capitol Hill start young, that they are sanctioned in their office if their office becomes aware of them having conversations with other Oh, that's not staff. true. It's true. Seriously? Now, this is happening. That, okay. they, that, that, they, that they are judged harshly if they are, even with lawmakers who are across the hallway, other staffers of a Democrat or Republican, that this idea of hanging out with the other side has become toxic. Boy, the in reason, this city. The reason this is one of my favorite restaurants and I think what happens is, in Washington yeah. filters across the country politically. Hmm. So as, as aggressively as you care to, describe why you think that's wrong. Well, I think some of the... The only way that you have better policy is to hear different perspectives. Um, you have more perspectives around the table. That's when you have a fuller debate over what that policy could look like and you make better decisions. You so. regard people with whom you have differences as people you have differences, not enemies, correct? Yes, definitely. Yes. Americans are not a enemies. A little bit of the old Reagan philosophy. You know, your you political opponents on, are not your enemies, right? Your political opponents are not your enemies. Unless they've woken up that morning and just decided they were determined to be your enemy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, South Dakota has been pretty bipartisan in the past. You mm -hmm. know, uh, Senator Daschle was the U.S. majority leader. Yes. He put me on boards that oversaw our federal farm programs, invited me to things. As a strong Republican that I was, mm -hmm. he still included me in the debate and discussion. You also talk in the book about the importance of legislative experience. Mm-hmm. You know that's not necessarily regarded as a positive in American political dialogue right now. Experience, oh, an insider, uh -huh. all this negative connotation. What you, where do you come down on that? Experience I you, matters. I think, I think you should definitely have experience in all aspects, but having legislative experience teaches you the importance of process and rules. That's why I think D.C. is so broken. Mm -hmm. There's no rules out here. They literally have a rules committee in the House that if they don't like the rules, they go write new ones and start over and vote on a different set of of uh, processes every single day. In South Dakota, if I have a bill or an idea, um, it's going to get a hearing. Every bill gets a hearing. That doesn't happen out here. I could bring a bill in Congress and for 20 years and it may never see the light of day. Either because of a committee chair yeah. or because of the rules. The only way I could now, get a bill Now, when Republicans ran the House, they yeah. had their they same had their thing. rules package. Same thing. Same thing. They wrote they wrote the rules to mm -hmm. suit their and political agenda and interests. I got here. Yeah. I was shocked by it when I got here. And then if I got a bill through committee, there was no guarantee it would ever get voted on on the House floor. Something, so, something also caught my eye uh, from the book. Um, very near the end, um, where you talk about the naked political ambition mm -hmm. of Washington, D.C. And you say that it differs men to women. Mm -hmm. How? Well, I talk about a perspective that I realized when Eric Cantor lost his primary election. Mm-hmm. Kind of an earthquake? It was a big earthquake. I remember sitting in my office that night, 11 o'clock at night, watching the national news of this shock that had hit America, that the House majority leader had lost his primary and nobody had expected it. And immediately my phone blew up with text messages of members of the House that said, Christy, Eric lost his election. I'm running for majority leader. I need your help. The next text would come from somebody else. Christy, I want to run for majority leader. Would you help me whip the votes? Do it. What I realized the next day when I was... The body wasn't even cold. It wasn't even, no. He hadn't even given his concession speech no. yet. And they're stomping yeah. over that dead yeah. corpse. Which will make you cynical pretty fast in this town when you see something like that happen. And the texts but, were all from men. 
Yeah, the next day I was telling somebody, I said what was interesting to me is that every single man I felt like in the house thought I would be the best majority leader ever. And it seemed like every woman thought, oh, I don't know if I could do that job. Did you think that? Oh, I think, yeah, definitely. You know, I hadn't been up here very long, Mm -hmm. but yeah, you start questioning if you have the time or the ability or the network to really make something like that work. And it was a good teaching moment for me on just the different approaches that men and women take at different times. Mm -hmm. Um, I have found women to be at times much more collaborative, not necessarily carrying up here who gets the credit, but wanting to work on policy together. You know, Tulsi Gabbard, Kirsten Cinema, they were good friends of mine. Mm-hmm. We worked on different policies. I worked across the aisle on different national security issues when I was here. And nobody was really concerned about getting out and doing the press conference first uh, when we were working on one of those issues. It Guys was, love that. Well, a little, a little bit of, you know, getting credit's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But it also, I think when you can do things together, it's much more impactful. More ego. Not, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put a universal blanket. No, obviously, on every single but man and every single lines. woman. But but in my experience, and I've spent my life in a man's world. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. I grew up on a farm Ranching, and a ranch. Far- I drove trucks world. for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. I served in the legislature. One of the few women there. Right. Ran to Congress. Very few women here mm-hmm. now as a governor, and especially a Republican woman governor. Uh, always in a minority, mm-hmm. and uh, I've just that's my observation. Is we tend to have a different way to approach uh, our own perception of if we should step up and lead or not. When do you think America will be ready to elect a woman president? Oh, I think they're ready. I definitely think, oh yes, definitely. Mm. I think America is. Mm -hmm. You know, when I ran for governor of South Dakota. You were the first woman governor. I was the first woman, but you know, South Dakota wasn't ready for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It showed up in all my polling that they were, you know, the people of South Dakota were okay electing a woman to come to Congress. They weren't quite sure they wanted a woman to be CEO. They weren't quite sure they wanted a woman running the state. So me educating them that I could handle it and how my thought process was, and just because it was very different and would look very different, mm-hmm. that didn't necessarily mean that it wouldn't be something that would be successful. How much of the January 6th hearings have you watched? Very little. Why? Boy, I think I've, because I'm working and busy. And I'm not certain that the process that they've laid out to conduct these hearings is really going to give us the real unbiased information that would maybe be helpful. You don't? Well, when I was up here in D.C., I was a part of many congressional hearings. Mm -hmm. They were never set up like this one. Mick Mulvaney on the show last week said the process is wrong, but still he believes the witnesses who served the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. who have testified under oath, and I ran down a list of names, Eric Hirschman, Pat Cipollone, Mm -hmm. Cassidy Hutch, he said, none of them would lie under oath. I know them all. They would never lie under oath. I believe what they've said. Do you agree? I do not know them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do know some of the things they've said are hearsay. Makes it very difficult then to... Cassidy Hutchinson has a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Not, not Eric Hirschman or mm-hmm. Pat Cipollone. Because Pat mm-hmm. Cipollone If they're speaking talk- first person, then certainly that is something that I believe that they would want to be... I would believe that they would want to be truthful there. Is there anything from the hearings that you've heard that is in any way shaken, in any way shaken, your confidence or faith in President Trump? You know, I would say that that was a horrific day, Um, and we would never want to see another day like that happen in this country. But beyond that, I don't spend any time watching those hearings. Mm -hmm. Do you think he in any way bears responsibility for that, as you just said, horrific day? I think that there's, there's aspects of that day that all of us should use to examine ourselves, and I know that President Trump has as well. What do you mean? He's, you believe he's examined it? 
I think himself, we all have reflected, haven't you, Major? I mean, looked at that day in America and thought, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. You think President Trump has reflected on that and come to grips with it? I don't know. I can't, you know, cast what I think that his whole self-evaluation was. But yes, I do believe that Americans have watched what happened that day and that we all have evaluated how that could happen, and what we have to do to make sure it would never happen again. That is the voice of Christy Dome, Republican Governor of South Dakota. Her book, Not My First Rodeo, segment four of the takeout, coming up from Ted's Bulletin in just one second. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Christy Noem, Governor of South Dakota, Republican, author of Not My First Rodeo. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Banks are a big part of South Dakota's economy, about mm-hmm. 15% of GDP, yep. right? Why do they come to South Dakota? You know, years ago, we had a governor that rewrote our state laws to make us one of the best states in the country to have a trust company, to have a credit card company, and many banks are chartered out of there as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's our third largest industry now is financial services. And as I read, according to a Money Geek, um, of revenue in South Dakota comes from the federal government. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that quite quite a few of the industries that we have do have a federal impact. And South Dakota is what is generally described as a recipient state. Mm -hmm. For every $1 in revenue it sends to Washington, it gets $1.21 back. Not a bad return on investment. Now, when you look at where we are and where we're located, when you talk about federal highway dollars, the amount of commerce that happens across our state, Mm -hmm. we also have the Missouri River going through the state, a large presence of... Yeah, large presence of Army Corps of Engineers, uh, Bureau of Land Management, Land Forest Service land, plus agriculture is our number one industry. Right. And the reason I bring that up is there is a theme of sort of rugged individualism in your book. Why would Mm -hmm. it not be uh, as a rancher, farmer? But look, Mm -hmm. South Dakota is ruggedly individual, but Mm -hmm. it also is dependent on the federal government, right? It is. Yes, absolutely. And I think both things can be true. Yes, they can. And they also recognize that America depends on South Dakota. You know, we literally feed this country and grow the food there and are the backbone of what really makes it tick. And as I've read uh, through the American Rescue Plan, mm-hmm. South Dakota received $974 million in direct aid and $210 million for local aid. Right. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. So you're a fan of the American Rescue Plan. I would say that that state dollars adds up a little bit different from state to state on, on how you evaluate it. So it's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, not as much as other states have How do you decide how are you going to use it? Well, some of that has been allocated through appropriations through the state legislature. For what? Well, the way that most no, states... No, no, I mean, I, because I'm just curious, what, what you got, that's a, that's, a, that's a big tranche of money. What did you do with it? Well, there's federal guidance on how you have to use some of those dollars. Mm-hmm. So the ones, dollars that we have accepted have been used to address some of the small businesses, the families that are there used much the same way other states have. Some of it we did not take. Many of it we returned. When you talk about some of those uh, federal spending dollars, 
A lot of the rental assistance dollars we sent back to the federal government. We were the only state to not take elevated unemployment benefits mm -hmm. uh, during this pandemic because I told the president, you know, thank you for that flexibility, but South Dakotans want to work. Mm -hmm. And we decided not to take that, too. Right. So we did, even though that those resources were available to every state, uh, even how we approached those dollars and if we wanted to use them mm -hmm. was very different than virtually every other state. Right. So I want to talk about COVID a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I've said on this show, obviously, during lockdowns, which were pronounced mm -hmm. here in Washington, D.C., we had a lot of conversations. With and I've said over and over again, every, every official who was in a position of having to make decisions was going to get something right and going to get something wrong. Right. No one was going to be 100% on COVID, period. Mm -hmm. Maybe you would say you were 100%. I don't know. But my opinion is nobody was ever going to get this 100% right across the board. Mm -hmm. Everyone was going to do the best they could with the information they had and the environment that they existed in. Do you have any regrets about the way you handled Smithfield Foods or the Sturgis Bike Rally in 2020? No. Okay. I would say that uh, Both my were relationship... Both regarded as, as, as uh, decisions that led to wider spread of the virus at the time. And I would disagree with okay. that on the facts that were on the ground and what we were was happening in South Dakota and our relationships there. We tracked both of those events, and they were not super spreaders. Uh, they were demonized by the national media because they didn't agree with the approach that we took. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Smithfield was a problem for many reasons. Explain uh, what Smithfield is. Smithfield That's, is a meat processing right. facility work very close in together. Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Yes, um, very diverse company. It's a very old building, mm -hmm. uh, and it's owned by the Chinese. So their executives were very difficult to work with during the situation. I would say our communication struggled. We did not have a good relationship because I disagreed with some of the things that they were doing as far as taking care of their employees. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not communicating well with them and getting them the resources they needed and. So it was a company was, problem, not a state governance it, problem. It was definitely the state trying to push Smithfield to do a better job mm -hmm. at how they were dealing with protective equipment, how they were communicating with their employees on what resources would be available. So as I read the statistics, 2,956 COVID deaths in South mm -hmm. Dakota ranks 23rd in the nation, mm -hmm. 250,000 cases. Um, I'm not going to ask you if that's an acceptable number, mm -hmm. but clearly you've made decisions that influence that number. Mm -hmm. You'd be comfortable acknowledging that. I would say that every state evaluates that, right. you know, based on what their mitigation measures were. And you know what the conversation were. was at the time. Several governors, some of the Republicans said, I will do everything I can to reduce that number mm -hmm. of deaths or cases, mm -hmm. even if that means doing things that are restrictive. Mm -hmm. You did not. You said, I'm not going to restrict, and I'll take the damage that may come from having fewer restrictions. Explain why you took that perspective and... If you believe this, these numbers would in any way have been lower had you been more restrictive? I would say a better way to frame that would be that I understood what my job was and what authority I had. And I was not going to take any more authority than what I was granted under our state constitution and the U.S. Constitution. I really believe that when you have a leader that oversteps their authority, that's when you break this country. So I told the people in our state, I'm going to give you all the information that I have. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you the risks. I'm going to tell you what the experts are saying will make all the difference in the world in slowing down the spread, keeping you healthy. But then I'm going to give you flexibility to make those decisions for your family and your business. So we worked very closely together. Um, our, you know, our folks were very innovative. And I would say that when you look from state to state, right. it'd be difficult to find a mitigation measure 
uh, versus lockdown and mandates that was no more mask effective. Mandates, you had no social distancing. We you had didn't. none of the other things didn't that any other anybody, state did. They couldn't have by an event in that or regard, they had to stay which home. Which is why you mentioned a moment yes. ago you felt like mm-hmm. you were alone because mm-hmm. you were the only state that didn't oh, do any of those so. things. You know, we had conference calls every week with governors mm-hmm. who did not sure lock did. down their states. Uh, and every week there was less and less of us left Yes, until you, I was you, alone. You, you write in the book that you in South Dakota did not make a distinction between essential and non-essential workers. Correct. Now, you took a shot at me a little ago indirectly by saying you don't watch the evening news and people shouldn't get their information from it. Oh. I would classify myself, Governor, as a non-essential worker in the mm-hmm. sense that to do my work, I don't need to come to an office and mm-hmm. be next to other people. Mm-hmm. But essential workers did. If you were at a mm-hmm. supermarket, if you were at a meatpacking plant, you had to come to that place to do that work and be next to other people. Why do you think that's an unfair distinction to help people understand who needs to be in a place where you have to be crowded and who doesn't during a pandemic? Who am I to say that that job is essential or not essential? To that family, that job may uh, be essential. Understood. But with that essentiality comes a higher level of risk. Do you think it's not important to communicate that risk variance? Ricks varies and we did do that. From, from job to job? And we did do that. Mm-hmm. A lot of information was given out to the people of South Dakota as to where the risks were and how to evaluate it, what what they could do to slow down the spread and what they could do to protect their family. But it wasn't up to me, and it's not my job mm-hmm. as a government official and an elected leader to go in there and to dictate to them what those decisions and, and were. looking back, no regrets? Not in those decisions at all. Everybody looks back and says, you know, I wish maybe I would have done more press conferences. I wish potentially I would have been able to be on the phone more often with a lot of those researchers and and get more information quicker and get it out faster. But what we did in in the state, especially in an unprecedented situation, I think was pretty incredible. And stood alone. Mm -hmm. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell for those watching on CBS News streaming and our early adopters on podcast platforms. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. Our guest has been... Republican Governor Christy Noem, State of South Dakota. We'll see you next week, folks. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Ted's Bulletin is our host restaurant breakfast with Pop-Tarts or house-made Pop-Tarts. They're not the Pop-Tarts you see at the store. Trust me, they're much, much better. Christy Nome, Governor of South Dakota, Republican, is our guest. So this is the Funny Games part of the program. We lighten things up a little bit. I read in your book, not my first rodeo, that in your family growing up, John Wayne was Mm -hmm. an archetype, a hero, and someone of significance. You mentioned a few movies. Yes. My favorite John Wayne movie is The Searchers. It also happens to be his favorite movie and his favorite role. Searchers was not mentioned in your roster no. of John Wayne movies. What do you think fact, of that movie? I can't remember the last time I watched The Searcher. You now you're going to make me want to go back it's and terrific, watch that again. Movie. Absolutely. And, and it's his favorite movie. Yeah. He named his son Ethan after the character. That's fantastic. In that movie. Really? Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, there you go. No, we tend- Why was John Wayne important in your family life? 
you know, he was my dad's favorite. In mm-hmm. fact, he, my mom's as well. We, you know, we all drove trucks and had CBs, mm-hmm. and my mom's CB handle was the Duke. Okay. So that's that's how much he was a part of our lives. You write in the book with great feeling about your father mm-hmm. and his a- accidental death on the mm-hmm. farm. Walk my audience through that because I think everyone is shaped by their parents, but it sounds like you are specifically and importantly shaped by your father. Well, every day was an adventure with him. You know, he was a cowboy and we worked all the time, but it also was a situation where you could be working in the field and he would say, it'd start to rain and he'd say, Christy, let's go to the mountains, Mm -hmm. go catch the horses, throw them in the trailer and we would disappear to Wyoming or Colorado for two weeks and... Everything was the next adventure, which was a pretty special way to grow up. He so. also strikes me as someone who was quiet, had man a few words. Didn't talk much at all. In fact, when he passed away, he was only 49 years old. It was very devastating for our family. And I had a Died million... Died in a grain elevator accident. He did, yeah. He went into a grain bin and was smothered with corn that fell on top of him. Um, but it, it was interesting to me because about, it took me about six months to clean out his pickup. And I think everybody who has a cowboy or a, a farmer in their family, they know they live out of their pickup. Their office. Their office, yeah. And I went to clean it out finally and found all kinds of little dictation tapes where he had for years. He had moved those tapes from pickup to pickup for over 10 years. Recording his thoughts about how to run things. It was every answer to every question I could have possibly had on running the businesses. It was what soil type was the best, what neighbors we could trust, what to do if we ever got into financial trouble. Insights about you and your siblings? Yes, there was even tapes in there that were almost 10 years old about what he thought our strengths were, what our weaknesses were. It was it was quite a gift. And he was pretty on target, if I read the book correctly. He was pretty on target. It was, it was pretty rare that, yes, like yes there was some very interesting... Criticisms uh, and... Criticisms in there. What he thought, I, you know, we, even me personally, what he thought I could do better. Mm-hmm. There's a story in the book that strikes me. Uh, you accidentally wrecked a brand new truck of his. Mm-hmm. Had to go out and tell him. Yep. Got in the cab with him, told mm-hmm. him, long silence, all right, get out. Get out. <laughs> and, and I, I was, read that, I'm like... Whoa, because I, I, not that the audience cares or ought to, mm-hmm. but I had that kind of relationship with my dad too. Mm-hmm. And very few words, and they landed like claps of thunder. Yep. All right, get out. Yeah. How'd you get out of that cab? I mean, what were you thinking? Oh, man, I got out quickly, but I also, I remember, <laughs> I remember wishing, you know, it, it, you, you think you got off easy, but then you realize that was probably the worst response he could have given you. Um, be, the lack of words... Um, you know, made you the feel... The depth of disappointment. It was. Made you feel disposable. Um, just get out. And you, you almost wished you would have gotten a little bit more of a like, chastising. Like slammed his hand down. That's or right. Raised his voice or engaged yep. you at some level. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, that, you know, it was a... It was, it was tough to read, so I imagine it was even tougher to live. It was, you know, and he was a hard man. You know, we tend to, when you lose somebody, you remember only the good things. Uh, but he is definitely the person in my life that made me tough uh, because he gave us impossible things to do that many times, uh, and there, and failure wasn't an option. He expected us to be excellent, and when we weren't, there was big consequences for it. You also write in the book that you're not afraid of anything. Is that actually true? No. Okay. You try to not be afraid yeah. of things. I talk about it quite a bit in the book. I think words have consequences. Mm-hmm. 
uh, when the way we speak affects people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, my staff knows if they're ever going to write talking points for me, if they're ever going to write a speech for me, to never use the words, I was scared, uh, I'm worried, I'm concerned. I said, I'm never scared, I'm never worried. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are days that definitely I so feel that language, way. So in language, you don't even allow people to, to comprehend that you might be concerned or nervous or anxious about anything? No. Right. But you are internally? Yes. Okay. People will tell you that I'm an introvert. I am a person who would much prefer to be sitting in a tree stand or out riding horses than being in large crowds or groups or giving speeches, and that's that's very much out of my element. Um, but I think that a leader needs to realize that every time you open your mouth and you speak, you're impacting people, and how you communicate affects them. And that when you are a leader, if you want to portray peace and confidence, that you can't use language such as, aren't you scared, and aren't you worried, and so many in the media. How about language that demonizes your opponents? Yeah, I think that that is, you have to be truthful, but to do it in a way that is specific to demonize them and to be uh, critical of personalities or traits or the way they look, that all dramatically impacts people, and it degrades the conversation and the quality of the conversation. Before I let you go... Look, let's be honest. President mm-hmm. Trump is the leading practitioner of all the things you just described. That's true. He speaks very negatively of people in deeply personal terms. And I can't fix that about him. I've said many, many times that that is one of the things I don't appreciate about him. But what he does as far as policy and what is expected of a president and how they care for this country and protect our security... Uh, that is what I enjoyed working with him on. Those are those policies today. Here, listen, if, if Joe Biden had been in the White House when COVID started, he wouldn't have let me do my job. The best thing that happened to me during COVID was President Trump let me as a governor do my job. He let me make the best decisions for my state. And I know that Biden would have never done that. And And for that reason is why I can get up every single day and, and thank President Trump for the work that he did. That is the voice of Christy Nome, Republican Governor of South Dakota. Ted's Bulletin has been our host restaurant. We appreciate that from them. Governor, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. We'll see you down the road. You bet. Probably in New Hampshire. (laughs) The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.